very, very good morning to you. Happy New Year. And um, particularly welcome if you're here for the first time. It'd be lovely to get to know you a bit after the service. But we're going to be looking for this Sunday and next week at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you could turn with me to that on page 1153. And let's pray now again for God's help as we look at this. Father God, as we come before you, would you indeed prepare our hearts, still our hearts and our minds before you. Help us to concentrate, to listen, to hear what you are saying through your word, by your spirit, to see Jesus more clearly, what it means to follow him, what it means to be his people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we only have eight days to go until we officially give up on our New Year's resolutions. Do you know that? It's the third Monday in January is the official date. It's called Blue Monday. And it's the day when we go, do you know what, I've had enough of this, whatever it is, this new fad that I've got into. But I don't know how, that means we've still got eight days when we feel like, you know, the future's open and anything could happen. So that's, that's quite exciting. But uh, what is 2023 going to mean for each of us? I don't know if it's going to feel like, it's, is, it, is it about new starts or is it about more of the same? Um, it is now unbelievably, isn't it? It's, it's just under three years now um, since we entered the first lockdown. I don't, we don't want to talk about that anymore, I know, but with all the implications that that period has had on our lives, both as individuals and as a church. Um, and maybe the longer we go on, perhaps the more clearly we can see the effects that the last two or three years has had on us as individuals, as a society, as a church. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it seems to me that one of the effects of COVID has been to speed up a kind of turning in on ourselves so the things that help us keep in balance were removed from us, weren't they? Obviously, social contact, leisure, sport, play. And if we were fortunate, we were left with work and not much else. And of course, we, we now have all those other things back in principle. But the question is, how are we doing with recovering that sense of life in balance? You know, technology is a great thing, but it's only increased the expectation that we should always be available, always on, always working. And for Christians, we need to consider what all this means for us as Christian people individually and as a church. As we reflect on how much and how easily we, we kind of retreat into our own bubbles, our own echo chambers, our own lives. There's a, a British-born theologian in the, uh, now in the States called Carl Truman, and he's written a couple of books over the last couple of years about the modern self. 
And it's clear that he sees the roots of these issues, as we sort of turn in on ourselves, he sees the roots of these issues as being far deeper than just, for example, COVID. It's not really just about that. COVID has kind of speeded things up, but the roots of this kind of individualism and focusing on ourselves go all the way back to people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You know who he is? He was the Enlightenment. From Rousseau, from those who kind of followed him, we get the idea of what's called expressive individualism. That the most important thing for every human being is to be authentic to ourselves. To express who we are. And actually the worst thing you can do, the kind of one sin, if you like, in this kind of worldview, is to deny the opportunity to be authentic to who you really are deep down inside. The focus is very much within ourselves. And if you're not being true to yourself, you're not being authentic, and that is the worst thing you can do. And from that comes very easily a kind of consumer attitude to life. You know, life is about meeting my needs. That's, that's what life is for. I'm at the centre, so I go, out looking, I go out into the world looking for things that suit me and allow me to be me. And put that together with a world where we increasingly fear and distrust other people in different ways. You know, a world where we've been told at times to kind of be by ourselves, to reduce human interaction, and where work for all kinds of reasons is getting more and more intense in a world that is getting more and more crazy. Well, how do we respond to that? Over the next few months, we want to take the opportunity as a church to think about these issues. And we're going to do something, which I'm going to tell you a little bit about now, and then more in in the weeks to come. We're going to do something which we're going to call the big catch-up. The big catch-up. And it's an opportunity to take a breath and to have somebody come alongside us and ask us how we're doing in our faith, in our lives in our involvement in church, to see where the gaps are for ourselves as individuals, where the gaps are as a, as a church as well, and how we can help each other better, how we can grow as a church. What it means to move forward now in this you know, so-called post-pandemic world. So alongside this big catch-up thing, which you'll hear more about in, in due course, we, we, we've got this couple of weeks now of looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in the morning's in these sermons, thinking about the perfect body. That is the title of these sermons. And in our small groups, we're going to be looking at a series this term called The Perfect Body, which is all about Christ's body, the church, and how we find our place in that. So that is why this morning we are looking at these verses here at the beginning of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. And this morning we want to see particularly how these verses speak into that sense of individualism, of isolation, of consumerism, of kind of me and my needs must come first in this world that we live in. Because it turns out that the Bible has a rather different view of what human flourishing looks like. It's not about, first of all, expressing ourselves as individuals. It's about finding our place in God's perfect body. And that is where we find who we actually truly are. Now, many people will have those New Year's resolutions, at least for eight more days, we hope. 
Uh, and maybe for some it will be to build towards the perfect body, or at least perhaps more realistically, a slightly less round body, or a less mince pie fueled body, or whatever it might be. But here, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, is Paul saying, this is what a perfect body looks like. Okay, so three things to see. You can see on the back of the, the notice sheet as you follow through. The perfect body, first of all, defined by believing Jesus is Lord. Defined by believing Jesus is Lord, from the first three verses. So Paul in this letter is speaking into a context where the Corinthian Christians really think they're something. They think that they're really spiritual Christians who've discovered a deeper form of Christianity than everybody else. And they're kind of saying that makes us more special than everybody else. And through the letter, Paul has been saying, actually, look, Corinthians, you're not as special as you think. And actually, you're pretty hypocritical because you talk about how amazingly spiritual you are, but at the same time, actually, you're pretty relaxed about sin. And he's been saying that through the letter in various different ways. So, about the gifts of the Spirit, he says, verse 1, and literally what he says there is the things of the Spirit. About the things of the Spirit, and it's a different word, actually, from the word that is used for gift later on in these verses. And we'll see why that is significant a bit later, but it seems that the Corinthian Christians have asked Paul, Paul, what do you think an amazing spiritual Christian looks like? And Paul is going to give his answer. And we might ask the same kind of question today. You know, is it true that if you're especially spiritual as a Christian, oh, well, that means that you're going to pray for hours on end. You'll find that you resist temptation effortlessly. Or perhaps that you'll have particular spiritual gifts that other people don't have like speaking in tongues or prophesying or whatever it might be, as he mentions here. And Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. There is a difference between people that matters. But it's not the difference between spiritual Christians and normal Christians. That's not the difference he's concerned about. It's between those who say Jesus is Lord and those who don't. So he says, verse 2, that there was a time when you worshipped idols, but now, verse 3, you can say, you can confess, Jesus is Lord. And it was the work of the Holy Spirit in you that enabled you to do that. That is what a spiritual Christian is. One whom the Holy Spirit has enabled to say, Jesus is Lord. If you don't have the Spirit, you can't say that. If you have the Spirit, you won't say Jesus is cursed. He says you'll say Jesus is Lord. So do you see, he's starting off by saying the question that really matters is not am I a truly spiritual Christian, the question that matters is do I know and can I say Jesus is Lord, Lord of the universe and Lord of me. If you can say that, the implication is that is a miracle actually. Now maybe you can think of someone and you think I can never imagine that person becoming a Christian, it's never going to happen. You know, they're too hardened, they're too resistant, they're too argumentative, they have too many objections. You know, they, you might say, it would take a miracle for them to become a Christian, for them to come to know Jesus. And Paul is saying, yep, absolutely right. It would take a miracle. Because actually, do you know what? It takes a miracle for anyone to come to know Jesus and say he's Lord, to say he's the boss. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. If you or I, this morning, if we're trusting in Jesus, 
That is a miracle that has taken place in our lives. That is the power of the Holy Spirit only. And, and, and many of us may well be able to look back, not, not all of us, but many of us may be look, to look back and see such a change that has taken place. If you've had the privilege of always knowing Jesus and growing up in a Christian home, praise the Lord. You may not be able to see it in quite the same way, but for some, you know, it may be different. And you can see in ourselves, we, we can see also in the, in, in the life even of the Apostle Paul himself, of how somebody can be running away from God and doing all that they can to hurt God and, and, and his people. And it, take, it took a miracle to turn his life around. See, that is what it takes. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. That means every Christian is a spiritual Christian. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit who has enabled that person to trust in Jesus for themselves. Now, we're going to see lots more about this perfect body, then, that you're brought into when you say, Jesus is Lord, in these verses. But first of all, we just need to see it starts, when, you, when, you, when you're brought into this body, it starts with the Holy Spirit enabling us to say, Jesus is Lord. That is the greatest gift. That is the greatest miracle. And, and then and now, that is massive, because that means saying... You're saying Jesus is Lord, you're saying me and my desires and my own comfort and expressing myself as an individual even, well, they can't be my top priority anymore because now we're part of a new body and though we're different from one another, we are united. And that is where Paul goes next in these verses. So then he says the perfect body, verses 4 to 6, united despite our diversity united despite our diversity. So, you know, sure, we're different, says Paul, different gifts, different kinds of service, different kinds of working, but we're brought together in what he will go on to call later in the chapter the body of Christ by the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. And just notice the casual reference to the Trinity there in those verses, verses 4 to 6. Can you see that? God the Father, verse 6, the Lord, who is always Jesus, that's the way of speaking about Jesus, the Lord, verse 5, the Spirit, verse 4. Now, sometimes people say things like, you know, oh, Christians made up the idea that Jesus is God and the idea of the Trinity, you know, hundreds of years after Jesus lived. But here is a letter that most people agree was written about 20 years after Jesus' death, which casually, and without even needing to defend it, has a way of speaking about Jesus and the Spirit on the same level as God. Can you see that? It's there in those verses, isn't it? Verses 4 to 6, they, he's kind of saying the same thing in, in, in three different ways. Gifts and serving and working. Spirit, Lord, and God. And so do you see in that sense, he's putting the Spirit and the Lord and God on the same level. And the fact that he can just say that and he doesn't need to explain or defend it shows that this would have been common ground between him and, and the Corinthians. Taken for granted, they are worshipping Jesus as God. And we need to see this not just because it's kind of historically interesting or something, if you're into that sort of thing, but even more importantly because it is then the basis of what he is saying about unity and diversity. Because as he talks about Christians being different from one another and yet united together, 
the implication is that we reflect what God is like as being both one and three. And in that sense, we can then see being part of this perfect body in Christ is therefore not just an optional extra for Christians, as if Christianity is fundamentally about me and God personally having a kind of one-to-one for eternity. And, you know, and, and I can sort of do equally well with just me and my Bible on a desert island or me with other Christians in church. It doesn't really matter. No, God in himself is about community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means his people also are brought into community with one another. And so this is not to deny the fact that we are different from one another, and in fact he's going to go on to say that in a moment. But it is to say we are brought together and united in this new body. The world around us only wants to say we're all different from each other, and that's the kind of glorious truth that we need to kind of celebrate all the time. And it fears saying, well, if you're going to say we're brought together and united, you're going to deny those differences. But actually, if we start with God as Trinity, we know both are ultimately right. That God is one God in three persons. He's not more one God than he is three persons. He's not more three persons than he is one God. He is equally, ultimately both. And so in this perfect body that reflects who God is, we're united despite our diversity. And then thirdly and finally, we are the perfect body, diverse despite our unity. So verses 7 to 11. So then if you're kind of brought together into this body, which then means your identity is found not in yourself but in Christ that it's all about him, not about us, because Jesus is Lord. If you're brought together in that way, does that then mean we lose all sense of who we are as individuals? Because that's certainly what the world around us would kind of suspect and fear. But no, Paul says it's the opposite. We each have gifts that God has given us. And notice these are gifts that are given by God. They're given as a gift. So it isn't so much about discovering what's deep down inside us, already there. It's about discovering what God has given to us and is giving to us in the Holy Spirit as a gift for which we always say thank you. But also see that the idea that there are some gifts that are are normal gifts and some gifts that are spiritual gifts actually isn't supported by these verses. Because the picture you get here, and we also heard that reading from Romans chapter 12, you get these kind of lists of different gifts, and they're not the same. They cover different things. And they cover everything from kind of administration and encouraging each other, through kind of leadership and preaching and those kinds of gifts, all the way through to the kind of miraculous gifts that he talks about here. So as I said, back in verse 1, the word was spiritual things. And he's explained that the first spiritual thing the Holy Spirit does is bring us to faith in Jesus. But now he's talking about the gifts that the Spirit gives. And the different lists of gifts that you find in the New Testament 
imply then that the, lifts, that the lists are meant to be exemplary but not exhaustive. You see the difference? Exemplary but not exhaustive. Here are some examples of lots of gifts, but they're not the only gifts. There'll be others too, because you see different gifts in different times that the, the, these are listed. In other words, then, what makes a gift a gift is not that it's mentioned on this list, but rather that it involves, can you see verse 7, building one, one another up for the common good. Can you see that word at the end of verse 7? That is what makes a gift a gift. That it's not for ourselves, but it is for the body. And gifts are not just something that some special Christians have. Do you see that in verse 7 again? To each one. And in verse 11, he distributes these gifts, which are the work of the Spirit, to each one as he determines. So they are for others and they are for all. That is what they're for. And it's not that everyone gets the same gift. The opposite is the case. Everyone is different. But if you're a Christian, you have gifts to bring to the body. And that is what makes the body the perfect body. And that then helps us to understand what's going on in verses 8 to 10. So he lists these particular gifts, maybe gifts that the Corinthians were particularly concerned about, the gift of faith. Now, presumably this is not kind of saving faith because every Christian has faith in Jesus, but it may be a particular gift of faith, maybe, for example, that endures through hard times when it's tested. So a couple of years ago, we had our COVID conversations, kind of interviews on YouTube, and we interviewed a Christian called Jeremy Marshall, who's the ex-CEO of a private bank, and he's living now with incurable cancer. And he's written a book about it, and he's very open about his struggles through what is undoubtedly a very, very tough and often painful illness. But it's true, he exhibits this kind of gift of faith through hard times, which is an amazing encouragement to others. And actually, there are people right here in our church family here doing exactly the same thing in different ways. And we praise God for each of them and are encouraged when we see one another enduring through difficult times and suffering. We say, that is God's work at work in that person's life, and that is an encouragement to all. It is for the common good, even as God sustains a particular individual through a particular season. And he then goes on here, and he talks about gifts of healing and miraculous powers. Now, there's a lot we could say about that. But it, it's worth noting that it's gifts, not just one gift. And, and healing takes different forms, doesn't it? I mean, actually, you can imagine, you know, anyone living 2,000 years ago when this letter was written, thinking about what gifts of healing would look like, would look at what modern medicine does today and would call it miraculous, wouldn't they? Because in, in many ways, it often looks like that. And it's extraordinary what we can now do through uh, modern medicine. That is very much a gift. We shouldn't discount that and think, oh, no, it doesn't really count. But beyond that, people then ask, well, well should Christians today expect to be able to do miracles like the apostles did in, in, in the book of Acts, for example? And we thought about this a bit more, actually. If you want to go back and listen, uh, particularly when we studied Acts chapter 2, but other, other uh, parts of Acts as well, 
Uh, and throughout the Bible, whenever God does something big or new through the whole Bible, there are often people doing miracles around that big thing that he does which show that what is happening is real and authentic. So think of Moses, think of Elijah, think of Jesus himself, think of the apostles in Acts. They're, they're all showing that what God is doing is authentic and real. And so, in particular in the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit is poured out and the gospel crosses that great barrier between Jew and Gentile, and everyone goes, oh my goodness, is this okay? All of what goes on shows that this is the authentic work of God. So it's that, rather than being a kind of model of what all Christians should be expecting to do at all times and in every place. Because there's a sense now that we have the Bible in its final form that they didn't have then, even during the book of Acts, obviously, that God has spoken in, his, in a once and for all way through Jesus. And therefore, in, in one sense, we're not living in the same times that they were living right then in the book of Acts. Now, that doesn't mean that miracles can't happen or never happen at all. God is God. Of course, he can do whatever he likes with whom, whomever he likes. But that may just explain why we don't tend to see the same miraculous gifts in the same way that we sometimes see them described here on the pages of the Bible. And sometimes people are kind of puzzled by that. And that may be helpful to, to see that. But what then about prophecy? What then about speaking in tongues? Well, much has been said and written about these things, but prophecy appears to be a gift of speaking something particularly wise and insightful that brings God's perspective into a, into a situation. Not on the level of Old Testament prophecy, where you can say, thus says the Lord, and basically if you don't listen, you die. You know, it's that kind of level of, of importance. And by the way, if you want to put yourself on the level of an Old Testament prophet, you've got to be prepared to be stoned when what you say doesn't come true. So be careful about that. But actually, there is still a, a, what is called a gift of prophecy in the New Testament. Or, or, and it seems to be more on the level of having particular insight into somebody's situation. So maybe you're applying for a job and it's really hard or there's some struggle in a relationship in the family or you've got a huge decision to make that will affect the future and you don't know what to do. And someone who knows you well listens and prays and brings a particular verse from the Bible or, 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 a, or a kind of a message of godly wisdom that seems to fit that situation. And you just go, oh yeah, that, that's right, that is right and wise. And it's not totally authoritative, it's not on the level of the Bible as God's word, but it's genuinely encouraging and it builds you up. That, that may well be what the gift of prophecy looks like. What about speaking in tongues then? Well, this, this is obviously quite a hard one to talk about in the wider world of Christianity. People have all kinds of ideas about this. Um, one of the issues we have, though, is that for about maybe 1,800 years, no one really talked about speaking in tongues until the sort of 19th century when it started to, to be more of a thing again. And so it's not entirely clear that what people often call speaking in tongues today is actually what Paul is talking about here. It's, it's hard to be totally 
Sure, it's often assumed that it is, but the thing that is called speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, for example, appears to actually be speaking in other known human languages. The gift of bilingualism. Now, actually, you know, many people today use the gift of bilingualism. Even, even people here have got that kind of gift. Or trilingualism, of, of the ability to communicate in different languages to, to, to proclaim God to others in, in, in different languages. And that certainly fits with the kind of picture of what's going on back in Acts chapter 2. So I don't want to be too dogmatic about that. Um, in terms of, you know, what it is. I think it's hard to say exactly what some of these gifts are. But I also don't think that's a big problem, that we don't completely know what these are, because, again, these are meant to be exemplary but not exhaustive. Exemplary but not exhaustive. So it's not that we have to kind of go, oh, my goodness, if I don't understand what this thing is and I've missed the point. Well, no, because Paul talks about this here, but he doesn't talk about it in other letters. It's not like it's the the be-all and end-all of being a Christian. He's got other things to say. So get it in perspective and see that the key to to discovering what our gifts are is is thinking, what has the Holy Spirit given me in order to build up God's people, in order to be for the common good? And that is a challenge and encouragement, isn't it, In, in, in this world that so often focuses just on ourselves and just on our needs and encourages us to be consumers. This is, this is saying the way to receive in this perfect body, this community, the way to receive is to give. It's saying don't be a, a consumer, be a contributor. Because we're part of a body that needs each one of us. If we're trusting in Jesus, we are part of that body. And we're all needed. And we're going to see more about that next time, about the value that each person has. But this is where, again, that this, this big catch-up thing that I mentioned before comes in. Because we want to say to each other this term, practically, well, how are we doing in this particular season in our Christian lives when everything's been crazy? How is our faith, our confession that Jesus is Lord? What do we need help with? How connected do we feel to the body? Does that connection feel strong or weak? If it's weak, what is stopping us feeling more connected and growing? What are the ways that we could discover and use the gifts that God has given us in order to give and not just receive, to contribute and not just consume? That is what we're going to be trying to help each other with individually this term as we think about what it means to be part of the body. There'll be lots more as we explain how we're going to go about that in the the coming weeks. But as we think about what it means to be part of this body, not lone Christians, not lonely Christians, but connected with God and with one another in his perfect body. Let's just pause and pray now in response to that.
Father God, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to see and to say that Jesus is Lord and brings us into this body, this new community of your people in relationship with you and in relationship with one another. Father, if we're still looking into these things, if we're still wondering what it means to say Jesus is Lord, help us to see clearly. Open our eyes by your Holy Spirit. And if we're part of that body now, enable us to see the full value of being part of the body, of using the gifts that you've given to each of your people for the common good. Would you help us in this season to see what that means, to see what that looks like, to care for one another, to care for those who are suffering, who are weak. To bring the good news of Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, to each other and to the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.